Well, good evening, everybody. Good to see you all. I see nobody sat in front of the full blast zone of the swamp cooler there, but if you ever get hot in the future, feel free to sit over there. Uh, welcome to Christ the King. My name is Jesse, and I get to be the pastor here. And if I haven't had a chance to meet you or hear your story, I'd love to do that. In fact, after service every Sunday, we either have a snack time or a full meal time. This Sunday is a snack time. I'd just love to hear your story. What brought you in the door? What God is doing in your life? How God's working in your life? Please do take advantage. I promise I don't bite. Um, if you're just joining us, we are now walking through the book of Acts. So we're doing a whole sermon series through the book of Acts, which is a book that talks about the light of God coming to God's people and then going out into the world through the power of the Holy Spirit, the movement of the apostles, the establishment of the church, and then the missionary journeys of God's people throughout the area that surrounded Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. And today, if you're just visiting, you are here on a great day because we're exactly halfway through the book of Acts. We're on Acts chapter 14, chapter 14 of 28 chapters, and we're going to look at an account of Paul and Barnabas doing some ministry in an area called Lystra. Well, before we jump into that, today I want to start out by considering a concept together with you. One that I've wanted to bring up this whole sermon series, but as you've seen, some of these sermons have gone a little bit long, and so we haven't had a chance to fit them in, but today is the day. And that is the concept, uh, especially when you're reading what's called biblical narrative, which is an account of something that's happened in the scriptures, you're often led to a place where you have to discern what in the narrative is what you would call prescriptive, as in advice and a prescription for us, and what in the narrative is descriptive, or just a description of what's going on in the text that happened there in that specific time and place. So we see this all the time, the difference between descriptive and prescriptive. So one time, for instance, uh, I was in Cambodia for eight years working and serving there, and uh, we actually have some friends from Cambodia. Hello, friends. And uh, we were there, and one year I was flying back to Cambodia. It was a 32-hour trip from door to door, and I was just exhausted out of my mind. We had a little kid on the plane. Everybody hated us on multiple plane rides, and we got to the customs official, and, you know, customs officials in any country aren't usually very nice, you know, warm, welcoming people. And after 32 hours and the small baby and a customs official, I just was not in a, let's just call it grace-filled place. And there was an issue with the customs, and they were trying to bribe me or get me to give them a little bribe. And I was actually very rude and very forthright with this customs official. In fact, I took him aback because as I was learning Khmer, the, the Cambodian language, I learned high language like righteousness and justice. And so when he tried to get me to bribe him, I said, this is an unrighteous injustice. And he was sort of like, who talks this way? And, but I was very direct and very rude. And uh, then he said, oh, by the way, what do you do here? I said, oh, uh, I'm a Christian pastor here to share the good news about God to you. And I just felt about this big. That's a description of what I did, but not a prescription, of course, for how we should all live. If we look at some of the people in power around the world and in our country, they often give us prescriptions for how we should live but don't often back it up with descriptions of their own lifestyles. And I won't digress to go there. Now it goes both ways in scriptures. As we read through the scriptures, especially in narratives, 
a big portion of the Old Testament and a big portion of the New Testament are narratives. They're, they're just describing what happened. They're descriptions of poor choices that are never meant to be prescriptions for us. Peter denying Jesus when he was pressured. David falling into sin and lots and lots of descriptions of what happened that, of course, aren't meant to be prescriptions. And there are also, of course, descriptions of things that happen in specific times and specific places that aren't meant to be prescriptions for us for how we're supposed to worship. So, for instance, in the book of Acts, there's times where uh, somebody picks up a snake, he's bit, and doesn't die. You'll notice, if you're visiting here today, we don't have a part of our liturgy where we bring out the snakes. It's not a prescription for how we worship. So description and prescription. Of course, that being said, the Bible's filled with descriptions that are prescriptions for us. Serving the poor, assenting to Jesus in a deep and real faith, forgiving others. The Bible's filled with both descriptions and prescriptions. And our goal, always as we read through the scriptures, especially through the narratives, is to discern what in here is not just a description that we can use to glorify God for what he did, but what about this narrative speaks to us and is a prescription for us? So I hope you keep that in your mind for today, but also as you just read the Bible throughout your life. Ask the question, is this prescription or description? And let us discern together. Well, in today's passage, like I said, we're halfway through the book of Acts. And we're going to see one place and one time where the mission of God took place. Took place. That's meant to be... A, I believe, both a description and a prescription for how we can enter into ministry and into mission ourselves, especially when we look at the context of where Paul and Barnabas are doing this ministry today. So, jumping in now to Acts 14, we're halfway into the scriptures, or halfway into the book of Acts. The, the gospel's gone out through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now it's going out into the ends of the earth. In fact, one way you could split up the book of Acts is that it's the first half is about building the church and firming it up, and the second half is seeing all that the church did in its ministry out. That's one way to look at it. And, and it's interesting, up until this point, the message of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the idea that we can have peace with God and know him through believing was spread in areas where they at least had a concept and a thought of who God was. So it was spread in areas where there were lots of Jews, and so they had the Old Testament, they had the prophets, they had this thought of the Messiah, they had this desire for the redemption of the world and the goodness of God. Samaritans had similar views. There was the Ethiopian eunuch, who was somebody who was walking through the scriptures to look for God. You had Cornelius, the Roman soldier, who came from probably a pagan background, but by the time we see him in the book of Acts, was somebody who was written as somebody who was devout and seeking God. And so all the major movements of the scriptures and of the gospel we see up to this point in the book of Acts is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, going out to people that had a backdrop to receive this idea of who Jesus was. Jesus was good news to them because they were looking for that kind of good news. But when we enter into Lystra here in Acts chapter 14, it's the first time when we see the gospel broadly going out to a group of pagans, to polytheists. And so these are people that didn't have a background for a monotheistic God. They didn't have an idea of the redemption of the world. They had a completely different view of how things worked. And as we look at this description of how they walked into ministry, how Paul and Barnabas did ministry in this context, 
I think it's especially relevant to us. I think it's especially relevant to us. Because as we look at the context of the city of Denver, and in fact, many cities around the country, in fact, many cultures around the world, as we look at the context that Paul and Barnabas are bringing their message into, we see it's actually pretty similar to our own. As a former pastor would say, both, a former pastor of mine would say, both had very little respect for the church, no concept or at least limited understanding of this idea of this almighty creator God, and no interest at all, no interest at all in the good boundaries that God set up for life and flourishing and abundance. As we look at this passage here in Acts 14, we're going to see that the way that they entered into this context, the movement that, they, that we're going to see here, them do here, is that first they entered in and they served, secondly, they spoke the truth unashamedly, and lastly, they gave the people of Lystra a brand new narrative that they could grab a hold of. So, if you have your Bibles or your cell phones or whatever you want to look at, Acts 14, we're going to start in verse 8. We're just going to walk through this account here together and see what it has for us here. So Paul and Barnabas, just to summarize what happens here. Paul and Barnabas are run out of Iconium. This is a part of southern uh, Turkey. They're run out of town by the, the, the Jewish leaders at that time stirred up trouble and ran them out of town. They were sent out, and they come into this town called Lystra. And as they enter this town of Lystra, um, called Kilystra today in Turkey, uh, it says that Paul was speaking, and it, the whole ministry started with this big encounter that he had here in verse 9. It says, And Paul, looking, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up, and began walking. So there's a crippled man there when he entered the town. So the first thing, the first encounter that happened as they were coming in and, and talking about why they were there is that they came in preaching, and as the course of their preaching, they had an opportunity to have compassion and to serve this crippled man. And we'll see that the serving of this crippled man through the power of the Holy Spirit is what led, what we'll see in a few verses, the whole town to respond in a way where they gave them their utmost attention to what they were saying. So in a context of little knowledge of God, low respect or no knowledge of the church at all, and no interest in God's boundaries that he set up for flourishing and for life and for abundance, in this case, specifically, we see Paul and Barnabas went in through the power of the Holy Spirit, and they had compassion and got the intention of the people by serving this crippled man. And what we can see here, I believe, is a description, but also a prescription for us for how we can think about entering into the culture around us. Now, sometimes there are discussions in Christian circles. I've had many of these discussions, both in Cambodia and then before that. There are discussions in Christian circles where the question is asked, should we, serve, should we put our resources and energy and focus towards serving the poor and helping the needy and serving those around us, or... Should we share with them the good news of Jesus Christ, put all of our energy into sharing with them the good news of Jesus Christ? The answer to that, of course, for me is yes, yes, uh, both, both works too. The answer to that, should we serve people or should we share with them the good news of Jesus Christ? The answer to that is yes, yes. The reason for that is that Jesus came proclaiming these words, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. When he said that, he's saying, repent and believe. Repent. Turn away from your life of sin. 
and embrace the forgiveness that comes through my life, my death, and my resurrection. And through that, you will be cleansed and you will be made new. But guess what? Here's the good news. That's just the entryway into God's kingdom. That is the beginning. And once you move into that, you come into a kingdom of new life with a God that, behold, renews all things. And so the kingdom of God is a kingdom that's anchored in the truth that that begins with the forgiveness of sins and the truth of what God did on the cross and in his resurrection, but continues to move into the fullness of life that God has in the kingdom. Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God. Repent and believe. Receive forgiveness. Enter into the kingdom. So that means any kind of life that embraces this new life that God has after entering through the door of being forgiven, is a life that embraces the kingdom of God, is a life that brings new life into the world. The kingdom of God is the place, as Jesus demonstrated, that brings healing where there's sickness, that brings forgiveness where there's sin, that brings healing where there's trauma, that instills new life and a new heart and a new mind in people once they've received this forgiveness. The kingdom of God is a kingdom that glorifies God In all aspects, the kingdom of God is a place where people are served in every way. So we see all through the scriptures that proclaiming the good news of God and serving in the name of the kingdom always go hand in hand. Why does a flower bloom yellow? Because it is yellow. Why do we serve people? Why do we proclaim the good news of God? Because we live in the kingdom. We've taken on the values of the kingdom. And we have the spirit of God working within us to do that. So here at Christ the King... Here at Christ the King, we've seen this naturally emerge within our community, both with serving each other, serving those with needs, those who have come through our doors, those in our community that we're seeing have needs. We've had lots of opportunities to serve them. We've seen opportunities to share the good news, the direct good news of who Jesus is and why he came to earth with people in our community and our spheres of influence. I pray that God gives us many, many more opportunities to do that. But we serve here together because we live into the kingdom that brings new life and new light into the world. We share the good news of Jesus with others as the Spirit opens doors, and we pray that the Lord would allow us to bring his kingdom into the world. May God give us these opportunities as we walk together with him. Should we serve or should we share? Yes, that's what we should do. So we see here in verse 9, so they enter into the town, they see this man, and they they heal him through the power of the Holy Spirit. The whole town reacts. The crowd says, I've never seen anything like this before. In verse 12, or verse 11, at the end of verse 11, it says, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus. Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought out oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. So they think that they're Zeus and Hermes, and then the priests come out, and they say, come on, we've got to have a party, we've got to have a celebration, we have to worship Zeus and Hermes here. And of course, Paul and Barnabas go, stop, and they tear their clothes, and they say, we are but men. And then they yell to them in verse 15, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, the one who made heaven and earth. Now, it's interesting, this appeal, that this is a very short gospel presentation, you should turn from these vain things and turn to a living God. In this context, it's interesting to see what the Apostle Paul said 
and what he didn't say. He said, turn from these vain things and turn to God. But in very different contexts, if we go back in the book of Acts, we see sermons by Peter and by Stephen that are filled with references to the Old Testament. And we see that God spoke through the prophets and he spoke through David. And, and, and we see Peter and, and Stephen tracing the movement of God's promises through the entire Old Testament. And they talk about law and they talk about grace and they talk about the Messiah. And all that's true and important. But for this presentation of the word and of the gospel, we see that Paul didn't go into that to talk about the law and about Moses and about all these other things, the promised Messiah. He says, turn from these vain things. And he says, turn to this living God. What he's saying is he's saying, turn away from idols. Now, rather than speak directly to sin for this in this specific case, not that speaking directly to sin is unimportant, but rather than speak directly to sin or appeal to God's law, which is transcendent, he speaks and he grabs a hold of their hearts by pointing to the idols that they worshipped. Now, in Lystra... Here we see how they responded. In Lystra, it was Zeus and Hermes. That's who they were worshiping. These were idols that grabbed their hearts. And what Paul is saying to them is that these things, though you worship them, are vain. Turn from them, for they are idols. And we know, as we've covered here in this church several times, that we know that idols always promise more, that they can, more than they can deliver and always take more than they can give. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is turn from these vain things, these idols, and turn to God, the one who gives rain from heaven and satisfies you with all the things in your heart. See, what Paul is getting at here as he speaks to the crowd is that every, everyone, lives for, excuse me, everyone lives for something, and everyone will take the resources that they have and sacrifice them for the things that they want. Everyone will take their time and their resources, they will sacrifice and they will give and they will do what they can to take a hold of that with which they worship, yet it's really that which they worship taking hold of them. So what Paul is saying is these idols are taking hold of you, turn from these vain things, turn from these things that you serve, for if you do and turn to this living God, he will provide for you everything that you need, he will satisfy you. And even if you fail him, he will forgive you, unlike what an idol will do for you. Now for us, whatever we are living for, whatever we're sacrificing for, whatever we are worshiping, whatever we're giving our resources for, if it isn't God, will always take more than it can deliver and will always take more from us than it can give back to us. Speaking to many men who have retired, who have given their lives over to career in an idolatrous way, looking back on their lives saying, I wish I had given my resources and my energy to other things. Giving your life over to wealth, giving your life over to being liked by all people. These are the universal idols that we all worship. Increasingly, I see as we look around our cultural context, giving yourself over to being seen on the right team by the cultural zeitgeist. <clears throat> excuse me, which is always changing. These are idols that we can give ourselves to. The message that Paul is giving here is turn away from these idols and turn to the God who brings rain and satisfies your hearts. Now, it's interesting, uh, the late Tim Keller, who's had a, a huge impact on many people, he commented that when he did ministry and outreach in New York City, that he was often speaking to a people that 
very much like this context, had no respect for the church, no real concept of who God was, and no interest at all in the good boundaries that God set up for life and for goodness. And he commented that when he went to them and talked about sin, not that sin is unimportant, but when he went to them and, and, and started with talking about sin and how Jesus came to bring forgiveness, to them it really wasn't good news because they didn't understand the concept of sin. But when he switched and he talked to them about idols, about what's grabbing hold of their hearts, about how this living God offers them a satisfaction and a peace and a goodness that they can never find with anything that they're grabbing hold of, then he began to get traction. And once he had that traction, he had room to bring in this good news about sin and law and Messiah and the good hope of who God was. Now, I don't know if he got that from Acts 14, but perhaps that's where he observed that. But he noticed lots more traction when he did it that way. And I've seen that too as I live in, as we live in Denver and have these conversations, speaking about idols, speaking about what grabs a hold of the heart, replacing the idols with the God that satisfies and provides all goodness. It's the path that we can see, a way to bring God's mission into the world. First, they served. We see that the first thing they served, they got everybody's attention. Secondly, they spoke the hard truth. They said, these things are vain. They will never satisfy you. Turn to the one that will satisfy you. And last thing they did is they gave them a brand new narrative for their lives. It's interesting. This isn't the first time in the book of Acts that we see a crippled man being uh, healed. But it is the first time that we see the crowds react in this way. So way back in Acts, uh, in earlier chapters in, in Acts, when the people saw the crippled man be healed, they praised God for his goodness. But in this case, they thought that this was Zeus and Hermes that had come down in front of them. And I was curious, why why did they respond in that way? Well, as I was looking at this, uh, there's several biblical commentators that said, in this area in southern Turkey at this time, about 50 years prior, there was a poet named Ovid. And he wrote an epic story, a poem, about how Zeus and Hermes came down into that area. And how Zeus and Hermes visited about a thousand different towns, and they were rejected by, uh, excuse me, a thousand different houses, and they weren't shown hospitality in a thousand different places. And then finally they came to this one couple, and it was a poor couple, and they showed them hospitality. And then Zeus and Hermes, they took off their disguises, and they said, we're actually Zeus and Hermes. And they went back through, and they destroyed the other thousand houses, but then the one that showed them hospitality, they showered with riches, and so this was a, not just a story, but this was a cultural narrative that the people in this area had taken a hold of. So this is why when they saw that this healing took place, they thought, wow, these are two guys. Maybe this is Zeus and Hermes. Let's react and make sure that we're not seen as unhospitable. And let's respond to them by bringing out garlands and sacrificing to them and, and, and having a party and responding in this big and deep way. Now, the reason that they responded to Paul and Barnabas was because this cultural narrative had taken a hold of them. It was something that sort of created their ethos where they knew that the next time they had this opportunity to respond to these visitors, they wanted to respond. And it was something that had tremendous weight and tremendous power in their culture. For them, it was, a, it was a narrative, it was a story, it was something that gripped their character, that spoke to this idea of survival, and this idea of bless, blessing and flourishing, and it was a narrative that brought coherence to the deepest needs of their lives and for their society. 
And what Paul and Barnabas did is they, they responded to this narrative and they gave them a brand new narrative. And they say, you don't have to be gripped by this narrative of Zeus and Hermes and these idols that grip you, but you can be taken by the story of God who will ultimately bring new things into your life and satisfy you with good things. Now, as we look at the world around us, we think about this idea of narratives. It can be easy for us to fall into what I call reactionary surface mode. That's where we observe artifacts or stories or responses or things going on in the culture around us or even things that our family or friends are embracing in trends, and it can cause us to bristle internally. Or maybe it causes us to fall into a slight despair about what is maybe happening around us. But most of the reaction, though, is in response to a surface symptom, something that we see played out on the surface of somebody's lives, a reaction to a narrative that's grabbed a hold of their hearts more internally. So what we see here in this message of Paul is different. He did acknowledge the surface of what they were doing and worshiping idols, but he pointed them to something deeper, something that caused their surface symptoms to come out, their desire for survival, the desire for flourishing, this longing for fulfillment, he pointed that out and he said, it's not these idols that will give you that, but it's actually God himself which will give you that. He didn't say, just change your behavior. He didn't say, just change the artifacts, the outward surface symptoms of your narrative. But rather, he pointed to the deeper narrative that grabbed a, heart, a, a part of their heart's and their souls that drove their lives together. What he did is he replaced it with a whole new narrative, one that gave life up to receive life, a narrative that turned to God as the source of all good things, a narrative that would lead to eternal joy and eternal peace, not just temporary satisfaction, a whole new story, a story to turn to the one who is writing the whole story. This was the ultimate appeal that Paul and Barnabas gave. And I believe that this can be our appeal too as we talk to those friends, as we talk to those family members, as we talk to those people in our spheres of influence to speak directly to the narrative that grabs a hold of their hearts and their minds and their souls. So much of what we see around us that causes us to bristle it's sad, it's, it's not good, but so much around us is a desperate call. It's a grasping for fulfillment and peace and security. It's a grasping for survival. I think what this passage points out is that we can speak more deeply through what we see on the surface and speak to what is ultimately gripping people's souls and their minds and their hearts, this narrative that drives them. So our prayer as we go out is that we seek the Lord for him to open doors for us to offer this appeal to others. This good news that Jesus came to bring not only forgiveness from sins, which cleanses us, but new life in his kingdom. One that offers us satisfaction and fulfillment and a, and a narrative that answers all the questions and longings that we have in our lives. To give them a whole new narrative. This is what God calls us all to live into to bring this into the world, to point people to him in this way. And so, just to end here, I return to our original question. Is this prescriptive? Yes, 
excuse me, <laughs> I just gave myself away. Is this a description of what happened? Yes. Is it also a prescription for how we can enter into a culture and into a world that has no reference for God, no respect for the church, and no interest whatsoever in the good boundaries that God set up for life and for flourishing? I believe yes. So as the scriptures tell us, as we live and move and have our being, let us pray, let us serve, let us speak boldly, let us give people a new narrative for the glory of God and the growth of his kingdom. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and for your love. We thank you that you pierced through all of the surfaces that we have, all the things that we have outwardly, and you've pierced through to our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit, the work of Jesus in our lives. We pray, Lord, that we would grab a hold of this more deeply in our own lives, that we would turn from vain things and grab a hold of you, the one who fulfills us more than anything else can. And Lord, living in that joy that you would give us opportunities to share this goodness with others, open doors, soften hearts. For the glory of your name we pray. Let Christ the King be a place where your light goes out. But we lift this time all up to your great and holy name. Amen.